One of the reasons we come together is to be uplifted, to be inspired, and to be stretched in new and exciting ways. And it is our opportunity to have that happen now. Please join me in welcoming Reverend Patrick Cameron. coffee on a balmy day like today, but maybe. All right, so I'm going to invite you to join me in a song and a prayer. And if I know some of you like to stand while we do this, please feel free to stand and please feel free to stay seated as well. In this very room, there's quite enough love. For all the world And in this very room There's quite enough joy For all the world And there's quite enough love And quite enough power To walk through our every So I invite you to know with me once again the truth of our being, that there is one life, perfect life, God's life, and I claim that as my own in this moment. And I know that each and every time that declaration is made, I am shifted and changed. And so the shift and change that takes place is that I move into that spaciousness of peace, of joy, of the expectancy that this is the only moment that I live an abundant life satisfied and joyful of everything that is present in my life at this moment and understanding the continuum and the opportunity that is before each and every one of us I give thanks this day for all that has been all that is and all that is yet to arrive because I live consciously and aware I choose wisely and I am a magnet in my life for great good and great opportunities to stand in the genius and the greatness that is divinely ordained for each and every one of us For this I give thanks, and I invite you to say with me, and so it is. Please be seated. All right. So the title of my uh, sharing today, and thank you, Jeff Morris, for being here, man. It's awesome. Awesome stuff. And Karen's over there playing her horn. I always love to have Karen with us because she just, the ear candy shows up when you show up. So thank you. Let me warm up a little bit. Just adjusting to the, the climate change. So uh, today's uh, talk is driving in a dust bowl. And when I was a young man, one of the first cars I owned um, was my brother. I bought bought most of my cars from my older brother. He's four years older than me, and he always handed cars down to me. Well, he didn't hand them down. I had to pay him. But uh, he'd put me on the payment plan. 
And so uh, I got a construction job. One of the first construction jobs I had uh, was uh, working for a, a company. We poured concrete slabs and we put in foundations in basements, and it was cinder blocks. So I, w- I would tend the block layers, and so I would mix the mortar and I would move the cinder blocks all day long. And it was a great job. It was an extremely exhausting job. I would go home at night just covered with dust and sometimes too, just too tired. You know, you're, you're 20 years old, too tired to shower, so you just fall into bed and get up caked with dust and go back at it again the next day. But <clears throat> I didn't tell my mom that, but we had so many of us, it was hard for her to keep track of us, which was good in our family. But I, I bought a car for my brother, and we worked on a lot of old dirt roads. And the problem with the car was, because it ran beautifully, but it had no floorboard. And so as I would drive down these country roads, it would kick up the dust. And pretty soon it was so dusty in the car, I couldn't see. So I'd have to roll down the window, and I'd have to drive with my head out the window. Like when I saw that in Ace Ventura, the pet detective, I think that I resonated with that so well. But I just, I thought about that fog that I would drive in from job to job, because we would work here and then we'd have to go over there. I'd be following the guys with my head out the window. And finally, I figured out that if I just put some cardboard down, it would really help alleviate some of that. So it took me a while, but I figured it out. And I thought of what a metaphor that is in our lives for how we can live in a fog and we just become accustomed to trying to see through it all the time. In our, in our practice, what we teach here and what hopefully is um, imparted is the idea of clarity about waking up to our lives and asking uh, the questions. We've been working with Norm Bouchard's book, 29 Questions to an Ordinary Life. And it's really about the, the, the quality of our questions is very important, the, the, the nature of the questions, because one great question can change everything. And so it's having the courage, because a lot of times we're just in the fog, and we get, the, we get attached to the fog. I wanted to, uh, one of my favorite writers is Mark Nepo, in uh, his brilliant book called Facing the Lion, Being the Lion. And he's a beautiful poet. And I wanted to share a quote from Gerald May that he starts a, uh, this chapter from. He says, a, a spiritual pers- from a spiritual perspective, attachment is the complex of dynamics that binds our capacity for love to self-centered desires. The root of the word attach means nailed to. Spiritual tradition sees attachment as nailing our capacity for love to something other than what it was meant for. And I think it's very easy for us to do that. It's very easy for us to nail our attachment to something. He, he uses the example in this, in this uh, story about his mother. He said, my mother was an angry person. And she seethed and smoldered much of the time. It was like living near a volcano. And she never, <coughs> um, never sure when it might erupt. I'm not sure what what painful situation she was reacting to, but I quickly learned how to absorb her heat and throw my attention on her like water. But it was never enough. There was always more fire than I had water. And even when leaving home, I looked for fires to put out, and I thought this was love. Because we, we, we get domesticated, as Don Miguel Ruiz talks about. And so if that's what we know, and that's the only thing we know is love, then putting the fire out for another is, is what we know is an expression of love. So he said, I became attached to the idea and kept thinking, if only I could find more water. So isn't it a great metaphor for how do I find more of this that I, that I, I think is love and how can I extend more of that? He said, once our fierce impulse to, nail, to live is nailed to what we want or think we want, that fierceness keeps us from the direct joy of living. And feeling cut off, we work harder and longer at getting what we want. If worked at hard enough and long enough, our attachment can deepen into addiction. That is, we can make God 
of attachment. So God becomes, attachment becomes our God. And it's, it's interesting to watch that play, play itself out in, uh, in our lives. I think at a certain point in time, I was attached to the, to the dust that was rising up as I drove around, and then I realized, this, this is crazy. I'm going to run into something here pretty soon. But we can do it in so many ways. It's the, the attachment, because, and it can lead to the addiction. It can be a variety of things, and we know about those things. So what are we nailed to? What are you and I nailed to? Or attached to? It's a good question. I think Norm Bouchard would like that question. Norm was telling the story in this uh, chapter I read this week about how he was in Dallas. There had been a big storm and his flight was delayed and he was trapped. He was stuck in Dallas. And by the way, we have more books in the bookstore if you're looking for them. We've been out of them for a while. Great little book. And uh, he was in Dallas and he couldn't get out of Dallas and and uh, so he decided he was on a flight. It was delayed. He missed his uh, connecting flight. He had to be in Oklahoma City at 8.30 the next morning. Decided he would rent a car and drive there, and he had a GPS system in the car. Well, because of the storm, the satellites were uh, wacky. And he, three times in a row, he went in a complete circle trying to get out of Dallas. And the, the GPS kept telling him where to go. And finally, he just said, I, he called his, his partner at home and said, can you help me get out of Dallas? Google a map for me. And uh, he said, because I, and he named the GPS Stella. And his, his partner said to him, do you want to listen to Stella or do you want to get out of Dallas? But we can get attached to the GPS system. If you've had one, and I, I think it's a good idea to name our GPS systems, don't you? So one of my favorite, I, I love the, the Velveteen Rabbit. And in Norm's book, he shares this. And I just think it's so appropriate for our journey. What is real, asked the rabbit one day, when they were laying side by side near the nursery fender before the nanny came to tidy the room? Does it mean having things that buzz inside of you and and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's something that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Well, does it hurt, asked the rabbit? Well, sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, the rabbit asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have been carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. Mel, I'm not picking on you. I just uh... <laughs> Mel told me how much he loved this book. So, But these things don't really matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. You know, here's the wisdom that the children hear about. We become, and it's a, it's a journey. It's gradual. And so the attachment, the nail to, is a, it's just an example of how we can limit our capacity to see, how we can drive in the dust bowl and not be able to see what's all around us and the beauty that's all around us. We're going to do the uh, Prosperity Plus class this next week, or two weeks we start it in October. And I'm very excited because what happens in that class, and and if you really have trepidation about uh, jumping into that, and if you're unemployed and you don't have any income, this is perfect. Just jump in. It's a 10-week experiment about looking at and pulling things up and bringing them into the light and saying, does this still work for me? 
because it, it's all about working with those gifts in our lives that look like resistance right now. And, it, and to plant the seeds, to be willing to plant the seeds that move us into a, a, a bigger experience of life. You know, one of the beautiful things about our, our tradition is that the prayer work we do is transformative. It, it changes and shifts lives. We change lives here. And that's the whole purpose of this. It's the whole purpose of doing the work, to be selfish enough to do the work, because it looks, like, it looks selfish to some people. But to be selfish enough to, to show up as bright as possible and as capable as possible, so that we have the consciousness and awareness so we can continue to do our work. And it's gradual, this art of becoming. And I love that about our tradition. It never ends. It, it, it extends into eternity. I found out this week through some, some peers of mine that that everyone has a, like we all have astrological charts and we all have various things in our lives that are, are uh, we, can, we can type ourselves with. There's the Enneagram and there's, the, there's all sorts of labels. But I found out that everyone has a stripper name. <laughs> Did you know that? I didn't know that. Everybody has a stripper name. I said, well, how do you discover your stripper name? I tried it before a service with a couple of people. And unfortunately, they were, they were raised on streets that only had numbers. But so... But um, so what you do is you take the street you were born on or raised the first street you lived on and then your first pet's name. So my stripper name is Leroy Dawn. (laughs) Jim, what's your stripper name? (laughs) I just thought that was really interesting. I didn't know that we all had stripper names. So just something to think about. And if you lived on a rural route, maybe you have to pick out your first gym teacher or your first grade teacher or whatever. I thought that was interesting. One more thing to that I'll have to take a workshop on to work through, I guess. There's a wonderful story in Mark, Mark Nepo's, um, in, his, in this book. And it comes from Dr. Ray, Raymond Moody. And I, when I was younger, I read a lot of Raymond Moody's work because it was, it was, a, it was, it'll be okay. In Dr. Moody's book, uh, he's a leading authority on near-death experiences. <clears throat> he recounts the story of a fundamental minister who was in a severe car accident. He was very close to death, and the minister had an out-of-body experience. While he was bleeding in the ambulance, his spirit seemed to hover alongside the, at the siren, watching his tangled body barely tethered to his life. In a sense of time that defies words, he was thrust into a life review while following the ambulance. More than revisiting memories, he seemed to actually enter moments of life as they were happening, as if all, all time keeps happening at once. And there he was, early in his determined ministry, forbidding sin and preaching hell in a fiery way, fiercely. But on this particular Sunday, in this particular congregation, he saw himself behind the pulpit. pulpit. From outside himself, he was stopped by how vicious he seemed. And then he focused on a nine-year-old boy listening intently and urging him, merged with, and entering him, he merged with this young boy. Once inside the boy, he could feel the fear, the terror, which he had induced. And he would somehow feel, how, could, could somehow feel both at once, his obsession with striking the fear of God into others and the fear he had triggered. When he awoke in the hospital, still alive, tubes running from his nose and arms, he was broken of all determination. And everything was different. When interviewed years later by Dr. Moody, the minister admitted, I was surprised to learn that God was not interested in my th- theology but God was interested in my capacity to love. And it's, it, it's such a beautiful example of we are all connected. 
We think we're separate, and we are. We're individualized, but we're always communicating. What are we communicating from? Are we communicating from our brilliance and our genius and our, our capacity to love unconditionally? For the gift of compassion entered without hesitation. It is that we are humbled by that truth. Despite our separate bodies and personal histories and all the nailing down, we are each other. We are each other. And Dr. Holmes talked about that. There's no private good. We're all connected. When Jeff gets up to sing a song, we're all singing the song with him. He just happens to have poured his artistry into that ability. But we all identify with that and we all connect with that. And that's the opening of the heart and that's the courage that it takes for us to, to do that. And it's the becoming. It's the becoming, as it says in the Valentine Rabbit. So we, we're, we're moving into our sort of academic year and the reason that we talk about, a lot, about it a lot is because it's important, I think, to be exposed to ideas and opportunities and, and to the group consciousness that help shift and change the things in our lives that, aren't, that are keeping us stuck, that are keeping us nailed or attached to something. And so it's interesting because when you go, get into a class and you get into a group and you start talking about these things, all of a sudden you hear your story coming and going. And so I, want, I, had, I asked permission. I received this email last night. I was getting ready and it was... I read a bit and I have to put it down because I have to, I can't stay in my head getting ready, but I have to read a little bit that it gets me kind of tuned into where I'm going. I need it. It's a, it's a dance for me. It's a very interesting thing. And then at 2.30 in the morning, all of a sudden, oh, I got to go write that down. And then usually by the time I get to the paper and pen, I've forgotten what I was going to write down. But, but anyway, this came in last night and I asked uh, for permission to share this with you because it's an example of how our lives are changed. And this comes from one of our, our practitioner interns. This comes from Julie Bull, who works with our children. She's down there. Is Julie down there right now? She's down. She goes to the first service. She's down there um, nurturing and mentoring the little ones. And she, she's always telling me how surprised she is, how much she loves that. And then she's up here for the second service. She said, Thursday I went to see my surgeon. And Julie had had a health problem. And she'd had repeated surgeries to help alleviate the suffering and the pain without going into all the details. But they were numerous. And they would have to anesthetize her each time because it was so painful. Um, Thursday, I went to see my surgeon, the guy who gave me the three months off of work for follow-up. He was visibly shocked to see me in his office. He came right over to me and shook my hand, telling me that he was very happy to see me. I told him it was good to finally meet him while I was not on any heavy sedatives or narcotics. He told me that he couldn't believe I was standing in front of him, that I looked really good and really healthy. And I told him I was walking almost every day and had started taking yoga. He told me not to overdo it, but I mentioned that I had been gradually working towards all this since my release from the hospital. He kept looking at me, and it was almost getting embarrassing, but he finally told me that not only did he almost cut my stomach open during surgery, but that he knew while I was in surgery that I was not going to make it. that I was operating on a dead woman. Now I was shocked. The nurses had mentioned to me that I almost died, but I did not know the gravity of the situation until that moment the surgeon mentioned it to me. So this means that all the prayer treatments that I requested and the prayer support that you all sent me worked, even better than anyone could have known. I am so grateful to all of you who included me in your thoughts and prayers and those who visited me in the hospital. I am grateful to be alive and to be able to thank all of you 
to thank you so very, very much. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you all. From being led to the center, I'm so very grateful. Patrick, I'm especially grateful for all the prayer work you did for me at the beginning of my journey at the center. I could have come no other way, so thank you, thank you, thank you. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is, this is, this is why we're here. So when we invite you to take classes, it's so that the, the, one of the goals as practitioners is so that you can be a practitioner for yourself and for others. So that when things happen and you find yourself attached to something or you find something spinning out in your life, you find things going in a direction that no longer serves you, you have the tools and the awareness to catch yourself and say, you know, I made an agreement, I'm not doing this anymore. And sometimes even when we make the agreement and we start to have the, the, the demonstration or the realization or the, the, the things show up in our lives, and then all of a sudden the old thing shows up again. It's just simply because many times we're so attached to that old way of being that it pulls us back. And it requires the clarity and the awareness and the kindness and the ability to just simply move ourselves back again. And so that's right. I made this vow. I made this commitment to myself. I wouldn't do this anymore. And I did it again. But it isn't it interesting how infrequent it happens now. That's the part of becoming. That's the part of becoming. And so this letter from Julie, you know, she's going to come up after service. You'll see her come in the door. I asked her if I could share the letter. As soon as I saw it, I said, oh, my God. You know, I, I, I cried a bit when I read it because it's just so sweet. And it doesn't surprise me, but it's just so sweet. And I remember when Julie first came and the times that we sat down and prayed and prayed and prayed. And I said, Julie, I don't know the answers, but I do know there's a bigger idea that wants to be given birth by means of you. And I can help you with that. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you what to do. There are all kinds of things going on in our life because you know what to do. So let's go there and let's bring clarity to that. Let's get you out of the dust bowl that you're driving in and, and bring some clarity to that so you can make the right choices for you. And if you make a choice and it turns out not to be the right choice, then you make another choice. But our tendency is that it's as if it's a competition and if we make the wrong choice, we can't change our minds. Every woman in my life says it's a woman's prerogative to change your mind, so I don't know what the issue is with that. But it's such a joyful thing to be here and how precious life is. And so, you know, this whole, this whole thing around abundance in our lives, the whole thing about prosperity and having enough and being enough and all that, it's enough right now. Abundance, is being, abundance and prosperity is being happy with what we have right now. That doesn't mean it won't change, it won't shift. But that's abundance to say, you know, this day, this is what I have. And I'm joyful with this. And I'm moving forward because I'm planting seeds of possibility. We plant the seeds. We had a beautiful, uh, we did a panel here with Reverend Catherine Cardinal and Reverend uh, Catherine McLeod and I. We did a, one of the uh, interview panels for practitioners as part of the new pr- model that we're using in the integration. And one of the, uh, and I asked both of them at the time, I asked the practitioners at the time, I said, are you tithers? Are you tithers? Do you give back 10% to your source of good in your life? And he said, oh, absolutely. Because I want to know that because there's no other place that's more challenging for us than being in financially. Are you a tither? Are you putting your money where your mouth is? And, and the interesting thing about it, and we were, when we had this great conversation within that, those panels, was one of the ladies shared that even when she was unemployed, she kept tithing. 
And she said, and I said, isn't it interesting when you understand the principles and you understand you continue to plant the seeds and you continue to nurture the garden. But many of us, you know, and this is what I did when I started that practice. I'd give my 10%, begrudgingly and angrily, and then I'd stand there tapping my foot, waiting for my return on my investment. That was my mindset. But it, it's, it's, it's not just financial, it's sharing all of our gifts. And I'm, I was so grateful for our pastoral care team that went over and visited Julie, and they continue to do that throughout this community. Wonderful people. So grateful for all of you that have invested yourself in what we teach. Is it the only thing? No. There are people doing great work in all traditions all over the planet. That's why we honor all of them. But the consciousness has to be there. And that's what we're here about is giving birth to the consciousness. Giving birth to the consciousness. And so when someone like Julie shows up and she has these experiences, we sit down and we pray with them, knowing the highest and best. Whatever it is for this individual, for my, my client, to have the highest and best experience with this. And, you know, and, and, there's, and there's, op- there's opportunities for all of us, but life is ongoing. And if the highest and best had been for Julie, it's not about the healing. She had the he- or the, it's not about the cure. She had the cure, but it's about the healing. Spirit is not interested in our theologies. It's interested in our capacity to love. And that's the truth. I mean, all you have to do is look at the life of Jesus. It's what he brought. That's what upset so many people. Because up to that point, the Jewish tradition was all about the rules. It's easy to follow the rules. You can follow the rules. It doesn't matter how you're feeling. And that's, that's one of the beautiful things about it. It's about our capacity to love. So I thank you all for your continued prayer work and support for yourselves, for one another. See, when you pray for yourself, you're praying for all of us. Prayer is prayer. Extension of love is the extension of love. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. But you can feel the hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? The rabbit asked, or bit by bit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have been carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't really matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. And it is our opportunity to even love them. So it is.